The views and opinions that are expressed in this and future podcasts are not the views coming out of the State Office of African American Affairs and are not the views coming out of any other state agency, including the governor's office. I'm Danny Golden. And I'm Devin Williams. And this is Reeducated, a podcast brought to you by the New Mexico State Office of African American Affairs. The purpose of the podcast is to educate the community on environmental, social, and physical inequities and challenges that Black communities must deal with and what can be done to empower the Black community to help them navigate through the understanding of legislation and policy on a micro and macro level. Welcome, everybody, to Episode 7 of Reeducated, a podcast where we like to rethink, relearn, and get reeducated on many topics facing our Black community here in the state of New Mexico. I just want to give a big shout out and a big thank you to the New Mexico State Office of African American Affairs for allowing Devin and I to have this platform and have so many wonderful conversations with so many wonderful people and highlight great people and great businesses and organizations doing the work in the community. It's really an honor. So uh, we also want to thank our, our sponsors. We'll hear from them a little bit later. Today, we're not going to have a guest. It's just going to be me and Devin chopping it up. And we're talking about overcoming disparities in housing in the Black community. So Devin, you want to give us a little intro? Take us in? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so when it comes to housing, specifically when it comes to not only the Black community, but when you look at all communities as a whole, it's pretty uh, dispersed, if you will, mm-hmm. or it's pretty divided in the way that... Um, these communities are able to live just because of the allocation of resources for all these communities. Mm. And when you talk about communities of colors or um, communities where, you know, I wouldn't say minorities, but, you know, communities that aren't as fortunate as to benefit from the system, Mm -hmm. those communities are essentially the ones that struggle a little bit more are in a, a spaces that aren't necessarily conducive to surviving a pandemic mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of other different cases, specifically when it comes to the um, growth and cognitive development of children in those neighborhoods. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, we've seen this pattern. This has been kind of building in mm-hmm. this country for a long time. And there's this this long history of, you know, clipping certain people out of the American dream. You know, we hear that a lot. Mm-hmm. The the American dream, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. But when it comes to happiness, I think, you know, having a safe and stable home mm-hmm. is, is so important to that. Yeah. And uh, as we'll talk about throughout this episode, there have been many campaigns, many pushes mm-hmm. from certain sectors, um, even the government, sadly, at times, um, you know, blocking certain people from housing. Oh yeah, and you know it starts with, um, especially when you're looking at the nineteen early 1900s. It starts with um, the government using exclusionary zoning, and so really uh, creating zoning ordinances in order to segregate these different communities. Pretty much feeling that um, black people need to stay out of white communities, or white mm-hmm. communities need to essentially stay together in order to flourish or be prosperous and things of that nature. 
not only stay together, but exclude certain exactly. people like overtly. Mm-hmm. These were laws. This is, it's not like right, you know, today where it might be kind of in the fine print. I mean, it was like overtly like do not rent, do not sell mm-hmm. to you know, black folks, especially. Yeah, definitely. And the thing is, in trying to exclude black people and in trying to have this uh, kind of um what they probably would call a safe haven, they would essentially make it to where it should only be single family homes. Mm. And so, you know, the uh, husband and wife, the two kids, boy and a girl, white picket fence, you got the dog, like just the traditional 1900s imagery and propaganda around Mm. this is what the perfect family of America looks like. Mm. And that just created a lot of issues and that just really shifted Americans' mindset on how housing is supposed to look and who are supposed to be in these houses when it comes to, you know, living situations and communities. And um, in order to push people into that type of mindset and push people towards that, they uh the government did in 1917 a own your own home campaign. Mm-hmm. So essentially, with that, they uh, uh the Department of Labor and the the Department of Labor promoted the own your own own home campaign, which was a response to being terrified of the Russian uh, revolution. Wow! And really thinking that um, in order to combat communism. They had to segregate white people and tell them, you need to own your own home just so they can support a capitalist system and a capitalist society. Mm, So it was very reactionary Mm -hmm. and Mm fear-based, you know, to say, like, these communists are going to infiltrate us, you know. And it's crazy how that intersection of politics and race Mm -hmm. came into play specifically when it comes to housing. Oh, yeah. Also, whenever it came to the promotion of the Own Your Own Home campaign, the government would target school children by mm-hmm. giving out "Own Your We Own Our Home buttons as well as pamphlets, which they gave to their parents and said, this is your patriotic duty mm-hmm. to live and own your own home and have a single-family single household. Right. So then it ingrains in them that this is our duty, this is our right. So it's easy Mm -hmm. at that point, which we'll get to, to start painting all of these threats to that white security and Mm -hmm. that white entitlement to owning a home. What's even crazier is not only did they target the school children, but they also printed roughly 2 million posters to put out to different factories businesses published in newspapers and advertisements to promote that there needs to be a single family home or there needs to be a white couple living together just again to embrace their whiteness or to embrace their lineage and what um, was you know naturally meant for them to be owners to be you know stable in that aspect and and one could argue like well that's not what it was about (laughs) but it's like it, it becomes about that when you exclude people from the image that you're presenting, mm-hmm. you know, and and like we said, you know, it started perpetuating stereotypes of our people and what 
was appropriate for us to have. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It, like, don't come over here into our world. It's owed to us. Yeah. You know, we're, we're entitled to this American dream. Yeah. And specifically four years after um, the Own Your Own Home campaign started, mm-hmm. uh, President Hoover in 1921, he was a big advocate in continuing the campaign of home ownership. And um, some of the things that he's saying, um, and this is all paraphrased and stuff, but mm-hmm. some of the things he said was um, it was an expression of racial longing, just as we were talking about um, white people living in their own homes is a sentiment deep in the heart of their race. Wow. As well as this is essentially an attempt to promote construction and sales to, again, combat right. what financial hardships they're dealing with in the Depression. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Once again, we see those sectors intersecting, Mm -hmm. you know, and ultimately um, at the detriment of certain groups of people. Yeah. Yeah. When it came to really getting and pushing these people, unfortunately for them, they had a lot of kickback and they weren't very successful just because of the feasibility of these families owning their own homes. Mm-hmm. They essentially wanted to do ridiculous 50% uh, percent down payments and you have to pay off all the interest before you can start paying the principal of the housing. Right. And then in order to pay the principal, it had to be done in five to seven years. Mm. Daunting. <laughs> and this, you know, uh, even for white people at that time, yeah. Middle class white people, that was that wasn't feasible. It wasn't practical to invest that much in a short period of time. Right. You got to have to have some crazy, you know, tap to capital, mm-hmm. you know, or some crazy inheritance or some crazy, you know, amount of money laying around for that. Exactly. And in order to combat that, the government created the New Deal, which essentially helped to um, provide a safety net for all these families that were going into foreclosure and weren't able to sustain the amount of money that it cost in order to mm-hmm. buy their homes in order to live in these communities. Right. And so um, in order to do that, they uh, provided, again, support for existing homeowners and made it accessible as well for first-time buyers to be able to purchase their homes and to be able to uh, essentially live in these communities. Yeah. And this was due to them not being able to um, have enough money pushed into construction. Mm. And in order to get that going and really fund these construction businesses and help, again, to pay into uh, the American capitalist economy, they had to find another way in order to get these individuals to live in these houses. Right. And so um, the New Deal consisted of the um, homeowners uh, loan corporation where they would buy out family mortgages that were about to foreclose mm-hmm. and they would uh, add another 15 years and then they would make it amortized, meaning that they would be able to pay part of the interest as well as part of the principal while they're paying off the mortgage over the 15 years. Right. Yeah. And I mean... That's so that's the system that we we have now, right? Mm-hmm. Our amortized loans, you know, whether it's a, a house or a car. Um, so thank goodness, man. <laughs> I, I don't have a lot of yeah. a big love of money laying around. <laughs> yeah. This just to me, it's just very crazy how the government doesn't 
look at black and white. Like, they do look at black and white, but mm-hmm. they don't care who they're hurting. Mm-hmm. It's not just black and white and yeah. all these different things, but it's more classes. Cla- yeah, it's a class thing, definitely, because we're all impacted mm-hmm. by, you know, that, like you said, that white people were struggling too. And then once it was in the best interest of the government and they had to do all of these bailouts and stuff, then it's like, all right, mm-hmm. let's switch it up. Exactly. <laughs> And just to go a little bit deeper into it, the government created a, or had the Federal Housing Administration, which uh, created an appraisal policy that only consists of white people. And so mm-hmm. it really racially segregated um, individuals like in law. Yeah. And it, they had it in statute that you could essentially work more with white people and you don't mm-hmm. need to work with black people or mm-hmm. other people of color. That's something that's really sad. I, I watched, I don't know if you've seen, there's a, a docu-series on Netflix called Explained and it talks about the genesis of, um, and, you know, moving into today of the wealth gap mm-hmm. between black Americans and white Americans. And a huge portion of that is, based off of housing discrimination mm-hmm. and a lot of people's wealth is based off of their, their equity in their homes. Since these policies um, were implemented so early on in history, it really has had a, a deep and long lasting impact on our community as far as the wealth that we've been able to acquire or not been able to acquire mm-hmm. over the generations. Yeah. And it's just interesting how, we especially are trying to um, really get into these communities and we're just trying to survive. We're just mm-hmm. trying to do all these different things. And when it comes to black people and people of color living in white neighborhoods and white communities, we essentially have to mm-hmm. make significantly more right, in order to be housed in these communities. Right. Regardless of the laws, you, you have people implementing them, you know, if you will. So, and these, these people were susceptible to the propaganda that's being put out there, right? Mm -hmm. All the pamphlets and the buttons. And now you have a a black person coming up to, to buy this big, beautiful home and in their mind, just deeply rooted, whether consciously or subconsciously, is this a person that belongs or should have access to be in this type of home in this type of mm-hmm. neighborhood, you know, regardless yeah. of whether they have the the means or not, those underlying biases and prejudices are there because of the the history of the pop- propaganda and discrimination. Yeah. And it's just a testament to how um, skewed the system is that we live in. The fact that it's more based off of what's going on in other countries, which, mm-hmm. you know, that does play a part into it, but also is a, a blatant disregard for the people who are essentially here, who live here, and a lack of practicality to help these people, to help, whether black or white, to really just help these uh, individuals that are living here and to really mm-hmm. support um, specifically, org- not organizations, but people that don't necessarily have the means to uh, live the way that they want them to live. Right. And with one of the things that um, was really problematic is the access to insurance when it Mm -hmm. came to housing. And they would initially make it to where if you lived in a mixed neighborhood, you wouldn't get insurance. Or if you're a white neighborhood, 
that live next, next to, to a, a black, black neighborhood, neighborhood, you're not getting any type of insurance. And again, it's just a testament to how biased the system is, specifically mm-hmm. when it comes to race and ethnicity. Right. Which, unfortunately, I mean, in this country stems from, like, you brought a whole race of people over here, enslaved them, mm-hmm. and they weren't they weren't supposed to have citizenship. Mm-hmm. They weren't supposed to be able to pursue life, liber- liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You yeah. know, it wasn't meant for us from their lenses, from from that point that they they stole us and, and brought us to these shores. Yeah, and prior to that, stealing the land of the individuals who are already, who are already living here. here. And they said, yo, we discovered something new. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like no, no, you, you didn't did discover it. anything. You invaded you did. Yeah. a home to a people that have already been inhabiting mm. and living at this uh, yeah. in this land. Yeah. And I mean, I'm like, I know we laugh because it's just like, it's not funny. It's just like the nerve. Mm-hmm. How do you discover something that people have been living on for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just the audacity. But, you know, and that that fast forward and that uh, permeates into every aspect of American life. Yeah. And, you know, and we're still seeing the uh, remnants of that, those practices today. Mm-hmm. And so. just the way that the system is, you know, um, there's so many flaws to, again, how the system has been created, how it's being implemented, looking at the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. Mm. And people in black and white, you know, you can't do it, but that that doesn't make it right. Right. And so with all the housing that they're looking at implementing and pushing white people to be in these uh, communities and saying mm-hmm. that black people aren't necessarily equipped or adequate enough to live in these communities and really discriminating in the allocation of money based off of race and not looking at credit mm-hmm. and all these different things. It just... It's wild because, mm-hmm. I mean, really, the the troubling thing about it is that you're... It's, it's all connected, right? Mm-hmm. So you deprive people of opportunities for fair, equal, and safe housing. Mm-hmm. And then the schools that are in those neighborhoods that don't have high property value are then underfunded. Mm-hmm. Now you have children going to schools that are underfunded mm-hmm. and they're not getting a, a, a proper and equal education at all. Mm-hmm. And then what happens after that? I mean, the cycle just continues. It yeah. becomes this conundrum that's, you know, placed upon us by these prejudices, you mm-hmm. know, in 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 government. Yeah. So it's it's really it's really tough to, oh, yeah. to think about. And in order to combat it, we have to actively and strategically dismantle these these systems that are put in place, like really advocate for equity when it mm-hmm. comes to housing, especially when it comes to the history of housing and how right. black people didn't necessarily have these different resources and white people were held hostage, essentially saying, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they wanted to have a mixed neighborhood or be all inclusive, but in order to feed their family or in order to, not be um, held hostage by the system. They were forced to. to, Exactly. And so I understand, you know, um, 
we do have like our uh, pieces of segregation where it's uh, black and white, but we can't also forget how the government has forced a lot of people, black and white, into acting in certain types of way. And mm-hmm. essentially, even though they might act in a certain way and might be um, not as educated on certain things, they're essentially victims of the system that's been created. Mm, 100%. And so. Yeah. You want to go to break? Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Devin gave me the I'm wrap like, up finger, y'all. Let's go, let's go. So that's what it means. We got to go to a quick break. We're going to hear from our sponsors, but stick around. We got more Reeducated coming up. Since 1912, Loveless Health System has been committed to meeting the growing healthcare needs of the Albuquerque community. They're invested in bringing people, providers, and technology together to ensure patients receive the best care possible. The vision of African American Student Services, AFRO, is to cultivate Black excellence on the university campus through educational discourse, leadership development, holistic health, wellness practice, and community engagement. The African American Student Services Program at UNM provides culturally relevant programs designed to assist primarily African American Black students in making a confident transition and successful adjustment to the University of New Mexico. All right, welcome back everybody. Thank y'all for listening. Don't forget to like, follow, subscribe, share, all that Mm -hmm. (laughs) with all of your friends, your loved ones. I find that it's so nice now. One of the nice things in this crazy pandemic is finding new ways to connect. And I love coming across a new podcast or a book or an artist and sharing that with my loved ones right now because that helps me to feel close you know in the, these times of separation so yeah no I definitely agree and just listening to something else whether it be podcast whether it be music whether it just be random things online just being able to again like you said find just innovative ways and creative ways to just connect with other people and to really just get in touch and spark conversations with people that you can't see, especially during these times. Yeah. You know, it's necessary, I think. For sure. For sure. Necessary for the spirit. Mm -hmm. So getting back into it, we've been talking about the history of um, housing, especially as it pertains to our community, but Mm -hmm. the history in general. And we talked about different points in history, you know, the early 1900s and how the Department of Labor kind of shaped the way that the housing market looked, how, um, you know, propaganda was kind of spread to Mm -hmm. perpetuate certain narratives about who was entitled to, you know, fair and safe housing. And we talked about the New Deal and how that had an impact on homeowners and home ownership and bailing folks out when they were really in trouble at a time when, um, you know, folks weren't doing so well. So we've kind of touched on a lot of points in history mm-hmm. and I feel like we can kind of, uh, fast forward to a little more current, yeah. but kind of come at it from different angles and policing is one of those angles. Mm-hmm. And 
essentially when you look at housing, we know that there's been like a lot of zoning, but now with the zoning, you have a focus on <laughs> That's a groove right there. <laughs> but yeah, when you look at housing, especially now, you always have to look at the aspect of policing, specifically when it comes to um un- underrepresented and marginalized communities. Right. And one of the things that have been done as of recent is having police being more integrated into these communities. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of a double-edged sword in that sense. Like, yes, they're getting more connected to individuals in the community. Yes, they're starting to um, develop relationships, but you also have this constant surveillance in these communities. Mm -hmm. And you have an entity that still needs to um, develop in a lot of ways in terms of cultural competency Mm -hmm. and really helping and supporting the community, especially when it comes to the Black community, that it ends up being more of a negative effect and a negative response to it versus a positive. Right. And and in connecting that to housing, mm-hmm. you know, if I may, when you have certain people living in certain neighborhoods and you have other people living in other neighborhoods that are not as nice and don't look the same way and they you know, you go in these neighborhoods and there is black and brown faces. Although that happened not by accident, Mm -hmm. you know, it was created that way. It was designed that way. It was purposeful. Now, how do you think that that impacts the psyche of the police officers that are policing those neighborhoods? It's like, obviously these people are lazy. These people are dumb. These people are whatever. And that's why they live like this. So I'm going to treat them like this. Mm -hmm. And we see the problems that, that we see today in policing. So just to connect that real quick. Oh yeah, definitely appreciate (laughs) that connection. But yes, we definitely need to really have a holistic approach on not only police's interaction with the community and housing, but also how community is defined based off of whose perspective you're looking at. Mm. And when you look at the perspective of just um, like the marginalized community, you know, we don't necessarily have the same resources allocated. And so our community looks a little different in the sense of we might have more people living in a single household. We might have more of a innovative way of staying alive, surviving, having resources, um, you know, collaborating with one another in order to be able to, again, survive, to be able to live a somewhat normal life Mm -hmm. versus you have a white community or a privileged community. They might have a single person household or, you know, single family household. They'll have, um, all these big spaces and, you know, it might be a little bit more spread out, but then you look at policing and how they identify community and they'll essentially look at a community as the people that they don't target. Mm. And so minorities and marginalized communities aren't necessarily communities to them, but exactly, but zones 
that they need to regulate in order to make it more of a community based Mm. perspective, y'all perspective. And so, but, you know, along with policing, when it comes to housing, you also have to look at the dynamics within these uh, housing, these houses. And essentially when it comes to marginalized communities, especially during this pandemic where you don't have as many opportunities to get out the house, you'll see a rise in a lot of the issues that come with being in close proximity with somebody for extended periods of time. Yeah. And that's, that's what's been really, I struggle in my heart Mm -hmm. because I I can feel it and I know it, you know, we see it that there's this increase of, of violence, Mm -hmm. you know, there's an increase in hunger, Mm -hmm. you know, there's an increase in all of these ways that like, how many of us were thinking about all of the ways that the pandemic would impact people at home, mm-hmm. you know, that that's, that's the hard part, yeah. uh, you know, one of the very hard parts of the pandemic. Yeah, definitely. And another thing that we've seen along with those things is, you know, um, increased um, amounts of depression mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, people voicing their depression mm-hmm. because this is probably a lot of people just like with the numbers when it comes to testing, this is probably not a real number because not everybody's getting tested. Yeah. Same thing with mental health. You know, not everybody's willing to acknowledge right. the yeah, mental health, you know, issues that they're dealing with and what's going on. But mm-hmm. also you have an increase in domestic violence and you have an increase in suicide. suicide definitely. Mm-hmm. I've seen, I've seen that, a lot. And that's, that's really rough, you Mm -hmm. know, and think about it. If you maybe, you know, and maybe some people wouldn't like me making this comparison, but if you have a home where, you know, it's your neighborhoods free of violence, Mm -hmm. your, you know, your neighbors, um, you don't have to worry about much, right. You don't have to worry about being harassed by police, um, your utilities are on, mm-hmm. you have, you have a comfortable and safe home in a safe neighborhood that has an impact on your mental state. Yeah, You know, I'm not saying that that causes or fixes or anything like that, but we know that, you know, your, uh, level of safety and security has an impact on, on your mental state and your mental health. And so that's why, you know, in talking about these disparities, that's why those things are connected mm-hmm. because it's, it's just one of those things, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, yeah. you know, you, you know, um, feeling, you know, safe and secure in your environment, mm-hmm. uh, is, is one of those things that helps us to feel healthy and fulfilled and all of those things. So, um, yeah, we've got to, we've got to look to these resources uh, to see how we can combat some of these disparities and, you know, help folks out. Yeah, definitely. And specifically when it comes to New Mexico, I know that when you, you know, look and go into certain communities and just in general, especially we can't talk enough about what's going on in this pandemic, but mm-hmm. now you have these um, apartment complexes that are, their hands are tied because they're supposed to be making money, but then you have these families who lost their jobs Mm -hmm. and can't necessarily pay rent or 
uh, continue to live the way that they're living. And then you have these individuals who have houses and mortgages and they can't pay these mortgages anymore. And so we're really, when it comes to housing, in a state of panic and we're pretty much on our last leg just because we've been sold this dream when it comes to housing that you have to purchase, buy your house, and now you have this big lump sum of debt and money that you have to take care of. And now you don't have the means to take care of it. And then we're in this uh, type of society to where, again, it has a capitalist mindset. And so you have to... If it if it's anything or whatever you want to do, it has to be making money. Yeah. And when you're not making money, regardless of it being an essential that mm-hmm. you need in the standard of living, like housing, food, mm-hmm. water, and clothing, if even though it's essential, it still has to be monetized. How do you think? You know, I think we have a, a few minutes. Yeah. How do you think we can mitigate that in the future? Do you think that housing is definitely something that the government should just like people should just have covered like bare minimum everybody should have a place to live you might not have the fanciest place you might but period you have a safe clean warm or cool Mm -hmm. (laughs) place to live with running water and plumbing and electricity yeah you think that that's the solution and that we'll ever get to that yeah i definitely think that is the solution i think there's a lot of things that have to take place in order to get to that. But I definitely think that, you know, that should be fundamental Mm -hmm. and living, again, having the basics, uh, shelter, food, water, clothing, education. Mm -hmm. I think those things are just fundamental and we need those in order to really survive and flourish as a society. And so we need to shift the way that we think about these things. And I think initially one of the shifts to um, just having more support when you're in housing is um, just having that family orientation and then don't feel like you have to be by yourself when it comes to housing. Like Mm -hmm. don't feel like you can't live with family members or you can't um, have a community based approach to housing and, Mm -hmm. you know, living situations. Because I feel, especially when it comes to um, certain communities, that that's just frowned upon. And -hmm. you're not supposed to live with your parents and Mm -hmm. live with your brothers and sisters and all these different (laughs) things. But if you look at it, you know, buying groceries, everybody, four people putting $50 in, having 200 versus one person paying 120 for groceries. Yeah, You know what I mean? It just, you get to a point to where it's more feasible, especially during these times. And, mm-hmm. you know, it offer also offers an opportunity for you to um, just stay in close proximity with others. Because again, yeah. being away from family and not being close to people, it's hard. It takes a toll on you. Exactly. Like sure. I got my family in Dallas and everything. And, you know, it's definitely been a struggle not being around them and yeah. being out him being out here versus them being out there in Texas and not feeling like I can help them and all these different things and so Right, right. But if we make that shift, you know, we just let all of the other stuff fall by the wayside as far as that kind of individualistic mentality that I think plagues America a lot. Mm-hmm. And 
come into this more communal state of living, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're more stronger, yeah. you know, we're stronger together. So we got to come together, you know, oh, yeah. support the people around you and, and don't be afraid to, you know, ask for help and, and, you know, don't make people have to ask sometimes. Exactly. Just help out. Yeah. <laughs> for real, you yeah. know. No, so. definitely. And again, this is going to take some time. You know, we got a lot of work to do in order to get to where we need to be as a society to mm-hmm. where we're having mutualistic types of relationships to where we're just continuing to build each other up. But um, in the meantime, I know when it comes to New Mexico, uh, there's been some new legislation that's been passed um, during the special session that's really helping not only small businesses, but families out when it comes to just the financial and economic situations. And so you can go to uh, our website at oaaa.state.nm.us to find more information about how you can get support and we'll continue to provide more information and uh, more opportunities for you to, again, help yourselves or shoot it to a family member or whatever you need to do to help your community. Absolutely. Go to that website. <laughs> What's that website again? O-A-A-A.state.nm.us. I'm like, that's a tongue twister right there. Go visit the website. There is a section where you can give us some feedback. So we always love to hear from you. And we will be getting to a section of our podcast shortly where we highlight people glowed up in the community. <laughs> so if you have anybody that you'd like to nominate or any business or organization, then drop that right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but thank you again for listening in. Remember to share to at least three of your friends, get the word out. We got to work together as a community in order to help each other as a community. And so we'll uh, look at seeing you next time. Yeah, definitely. Thank y'all. Thank you. Reeducated, brought to you by the New Mexico State Office of African American Affairs, aimed to study, identify, and provide change by means of support, advocacy, and resources relevant to the African American community. As a reminder, every voice matters. Make sure you are counted in the 2020 census. The Office of Equity and Inclusion was established by Mayor Tim Keller in 2018. The vision of the office is to inspire and equip city governments to make Albuquerque a national role model of racial equity and social justice. The office is responsible for dismantling systemic barriers to achieve racial, gender, health, and socioeconomic equality. Michelle Melendez is the inaugural director of the Office of Equity and Inclusion. In September, Melendez was instrumental in passing R-2075, legislation that strengthens and reaffirms the city's commitment to addressing racial equity and social justice. The resolution calls on the city to support the startup and growth of businesses owned by people of color, women, racial equity assessments for the city department, and requires equity training for the city council leadership and administration. Our very last segment is The Glow, where we'll be highlighting individuals and organizations doing great work in our community. For this edition of The Glow, we'd like to highlight the New Mexico NAACP for putting on their 69th annual virtual conference. 
in the conference, they were able to touch on COVID-19 and they brought Dr. James E.K. Hildreth from the CDC to provide more insight on the ins and outs of COVID-19 and what to expect for the future. To view the conference, click on the link located on the homepage at oaaa.state.nm.us. We'd also like to give a special thank you to our post-production partner, BetterSense. Powered by nearly a decade of audio and production experience, BetterSense exists to help you create your life-changing projects. Go to bttrsnc.com in order to explore how you can awaken the potential of your musical ideas. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast, Reeducated. We hope you were able to rethink, relearn, and get re-educated on some really important topics. Make sure to visit us at our website, oaaa.state.nm.us. See you next time.